on a Wednesday. Welcome on in to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Shirley Min, in for Avi wolfman Arendt. So, um... At the start of the new year, yes, tackling clutter and tidying our homes, a big to-do for a lot of us, myself mm-hmm. included. We accumulate so much stuff over the years, but it can be hard to let go of things that we feel attached to. Well, we have an expert on decluttering joining us a little later on in the show. Yeah, and we want to know if this is a big issue for you. Are you trying to get rid of stuff and organize your house or maybe a closet like myself? <laughs> What is your technique? What are some of the barriers to cleaning up? You can call us. The number is 888-477-9499. Or you can email studio2 at whyy.org. Also, later in the hour, face blindness. Hmm. The author of a new book explains the brain condition that impacts our ability to recognize even the most familiar faces. Interesting. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. WHYY news reporter David Mathau is standing by with a rundown of Governor Murphy's State of the State address yesterday. But first, Cherry, we do have to get to some of the other news. We both survived the storm. The weather. Uh, The heavy rain and more so the winds hit Mm -hmm. the region hard yesterday and into the overnight wind gusts this is surprising to me exceeded 60 miles per hour in yeah, some yeah. places mm-hmm. the national weather service does have a region-wide wind advisory in place though for today for sustained winds of 25 miles per hour and gusts up to 45 wow. miles per hour which is not good for the trees and maybe more power outages mm-hmm. yeah thousands of folks are still without power right now including me yeah and i i got my power back <laughs> early this morning but it went out fairly early yesterday evening so you know for those of us who's li- those who listening through their phone or whatever you know fingers crossed you get your power mm-hmm. back soon um but according to our news partner 6abc the delaware river gauge at columbus boulevard and washington avenue in south philly it hit a record high tuesday night just above level seen during hurricane sandy 12 oh years ago goodness. so that's how high the water got and i live on the brandywine creek mm-hmm. girl those th- those it was just rippling <laughs> it was it looked very scary it's very it, scary it get, water is scary at that those levels yes. um now the thing is it is beautiful out it today. is sun is out and i hate to be the bearer of bad news but the forecast um it looks like there's another storm and more rain headed our way friday to saturday so ugh, Ooh, and hi know. to all the kitties because i know a lot of people had days off yeah or, my know, children's delayed. school was closed today out of an abundance of caution so hi kids at my in-laws and thank you so much to oh, my in-laws yes <laughs> And moving to our next story, we're going to be talking about decluttering mm-hmm. later in the show. Uh, I know you, we both are working on some things. I'm so, so invested in this segment. But there was a story <laughs> in the Inquirer this morning that caught our attention. It's about people paying other people to, get this, return their unwanted Christmas gifts. What a gig. I, 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 I was <laughs> like, and you're wondering, why is this a job, right? Yeah. Well, for many, this is the season of giving, right? But it's also followed by the season of returning. Mm-hmm. The National Retail Federation projects that U.S. consumers will return $148 billion in holiday gifts this year. And this company, they found a market, you know, for that. Um, a 27-year-old woman person from Bryn Mawr launched this business is called drop up for nine bucks they'll pick up unwanted packages at a customer's door then pack label and return them and you can even subscribe to get this service I mean this is a little too extravagant for me um yeah. 
I will say the founder who launched it crosses the line for me. Uh, but I'm a good returner myself, mm-hmm. so I, I wouldn't need this service. But that said, this business has seen growth. Wow. So clearly yeah. there is a need here. Yeah. And they, um, you know, a lot of people, they're very busy during the month of January. Yeah. Go figure. Um, it just, to me, says how lazy some people <laughs> can be. Like, I'm not even going to take back my own gifts. I'm going to pay somebody $9 to come over here and do it for me. Like, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe you're also avoiding the hassle of having to wait in line. That's true. That is a hassle. Store, the lines so, are long. Yeah. And you got to deal with receipts and, and all of that logistical stuff. So, okay. yeah. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. uh, good news, though in our next story for domestic workers like nannies, caregivers, house cleaners. Yes. They are going to soon get more workers' rights in the state of New mm-hmm. Jersey. So this is going to be called the New Jersey Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. It passed the Jersey House this week. It is awaiting Governor Murphy's signature. I believe Governor Murphy's signature is it's bound to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, he's agreed to sign it. Um, but before this, which is surprising to me, yeah. domestic workers were largely excluded from wage and hour laws as well as any discrimination laws. Yeah. very. And there are 50,000 New Jersey workers who fall within that category. And we're talking about nannies, caregivers, house mm-hmm. cleaners, so many different people. Uh, they'll gain some privacy rights. Um, they can't be recorded in their personal living quarters. Per- employers can't keep the original copies of personal documents, all these different things. Mm-hmm. And I-, I had no idea. So, you know, kudos to domestic workers. Yep. It also creates a task force so mm-hmm. that that will follow up on the progress of the new rules. So that Very is good news all around. Very interesting. And so we're going to stay uh, in New Jersey. Uh, Governor Phil Murphy gave his State of the State address Tuesday where he talked about building a, quote, a stronger and fairer New Jersey. And it's getting a lot of reaction. David Mathau, reporter for WHYY News, was at the State House and he joins us now. David, welcome into Studio Two. Thank you so much, Cherry and Shirley. Great to be with you guys. Yeah. So we're going to walk through some of the major takeaways and we're going to start with the economy. Inflation, high interest rates, the aftermath of a pandemic and the tail end of supply chain disruptions. Let us unite together to continue addressing the biggest challenge facing our families. The fact that for too many, the cost of living is too high. Now, I'm sorry. Yeah. Can you put that in context for us, David? What's going on in New Jersey with this affordability issue and and how are these comments resonating? Well, I think they are certainly resonating and affordability as far as New Jersey is concerned is not a new issue, as we know. You know, this was a big issue for the uh, November elections and the Democrats basically ran on the the, um, affordability issue that they were making efforts in many different arenas to help families make it through and 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 improve their lives and they won more seats than had been expected so this is not exactly you know a revolutionary new idea it's one that definitely resonates in the state of new jersey because the garden state is probably one of the most expensive if not the most expensive cost of living states in the entire country taxes are always a big issue property Mm -hmm. taxes general state of living as well. So um, not surprising that the governor really pushed this as a main theme of his speech, I would say. And I, and I feel like, though, the Republicans definitely chimed in in their rebuttal saying, 
you know, this just was not enough. And I think we have a clip to listen to. Right. I believe it's uh, Assembly Representative DeMeo, John DeMeo. Mm -hmm. Let's give it a listen. Unemployment is going up. Costs are skyrocketing. Taxes are too high. Spending is way too high. More money needs to be left in the pockets of ordinary working New Jerseyans so we can keep the real economy afloat in New Jersey. So I guess, David, you know, I was looking at some of what they were saying, the Republicans in the rebuttal, and and some of the quotes were so damaging. Mm -hmm. It was like New Jersey, and you mentioned it too, the single most unaffordable state in the nation, that we are just the highest tax state. I had no idea. I live in Delaware, but Mm -hmm. I mean, these were some harsh words. And then they were kind of saying these goals are sort of pie in the sky goals. Well, yeah, I I would say that... um, the, the whole issue of affordability, again, is going to resonate strongly with people because the, you have such a large majority of folks in New Jersey that really do struggle to pay their property taxes. And a lot of folks, um, it's it's not easy just to make ends meet from week to week or month to month. So um, on the one hand, it, again, this is um, not exactly shocking that the Republicans would bring this up. However, I would say in fairness, the Murphy administration has made some significant improvements in this area, most notably the anchor tax rebate program, uh, as well as the stay and J plan, which will cut property taxes in half mm. for people who are 65 and older starting in 2026. This still um, has to happen. There is no exact um, guarantee that this will take place, but People are looking at this as as a specific uh, way to help folks who are older in Jersey stay in the state and not have to actually move out because they can't afford to live there. I think the Republicans, um, you know, are trying to make the point that they have been arguing about uh, these issues for years, and they have, but Democrats have been as well. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why, you know, there's been such a push, such an emphasis on affordability you know, as a front burner issue in the state. Yeah. Another big issue that Murphy talked about was uh, a moonshot idea on the on an AI. Um, we have a clip for that as well. Today with AI, I believe we are at the dawn of a new era. So now in 2024, it is time for New Jersey to lead the world in shaping a new emerging realm with incredible promise. Generative artificial intelligence. AI has been, you know, out there for a lot of us in a lot of industries. What is Murphy promising? Is it clear here? Um, You know, AI moonshot sounds pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that bars across the Garden State will figure out some kind of a drink and call it (laughs) AI moonshot within the very near future. (laughs) However, um, it's unclear exactly what the governor has planned here. He talked about the idea that government needs to be a catalyst to bring together innovators and leaders to invest in research and development and, you know, try to really create a situation where New Jersey is established as a home base for AI-powered game-changing. But what does that actually mean? We're not sure. Um, You know, two years ago, I think if you mentioned AI, most people would think about it in terms of, you know, maybe a robot being able to go get you a beer from the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what artificial intelligence kind of registered in people's minds. Of course, it's changed dramatically at this point. 
But this is all so new that I think um, the Murphy administration, in particular the governor here, wants to try to put the state government front and center in developing these kinds of plans that will hopefully help people, you know, and not result simply in just a few small groups of people making a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Um, you know, how this is going to shake out, the nuts and bolts of this are not clear at this point yeah. and, and really remain to be seen. Okay, so Murphy's term's coming to an end, his wife Tammy running for U.S. Senate. What what are the rumors now about Murphy's future political career? Really unclear, because there had been talk, of course, um, that he might run for president if uh, President Biden decided to step aside. Uh, that does not appear to be the case. Murphy himself, there's a lot of conjecture about what he may or may not do. I think part of it may depend on what happens in um, his wife's uh, campaign to capture the um, nomination for the U.S. Senate seat currently held by Bob Menendez. Mm-hmm. And that whole situation is a mess for Democrats. But I think it was smart that the governor really pushed uh, front and center, you know, his uh, desire to really um, improve the economy, make life better and more affordable for Jersey residents, because this is certainly a theme that we would expect Tammy Murphy to continue to push, you know, as she runs uh, in the upcoming primary election. Well, thank you so much, David Mathau from WHYY News. We appreciate your insights and for being on Studio 2. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Okay, well, coming up, we are ready to declutter. Let's get it done, Shirley. (laughs) Put that hair up. Email studio2 at whyy.org or call 888-477-9499 with comments or questions. Put my gloves on right now. Let's do it. Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? Welcome on back in to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Shirley Min. Now, Cherry, when was the last time you really went through all the things in your home and got rid of whatever you did not feel? You needed. I recently did my closet, but as of the entire home, oh, it's been a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but I get it, though. I mean, cleaning out, getting rid of things, it can be hard sometimes. And some people may have never learned how to properly clean a home. Mm-hmm. Surprise. There is a gender divide. But then for others, it even runs deeper and it may be a psychological issue. So we thought we would invite a cleaning expert to Studio 2, and we have Lois Volta with us. Lois, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. She's a columnist for, she was a columnist for Grid Magazine here mm-hmm. in Philly and published her book, Confessions of a Cleaning Lady, last year. Um, Lois, let's talk about your cleaning business to start. I'm sorry, we should open it up to comments Death before care, we get yeah. into it. I got yes. excited. You got excited because there's a lot to talk <laughs> yeah. about. So we want to hear from you. What are your cleaning t- tips, friends? How do you motivate yourself? How do you motivate your partner or your kids to clean up? Or would you like to get some advice? You can call us 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. Now we can dig Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this whole topic. I love decluttering. Um, But Lois, you started your cleaning book 
your cleaning business in 2015. Sure. Yep. And this was born out of necessity. Yeah. Tell me about this. Yeah. Well, I was doing the single mama hustle and it seemed like the quickest and easiest way to get food on the table and pay rent. And as I started my cleaning business, I started noticing that there was this correlation between a decluttered space and a decluttered mind. Mm. And I just started going a little bit deeper with my clients, finding that when we come back and maintain it, it just is more impactful for the family as a whole. So I want to sort of like separate the difference between a messy house and a cluttered house Mm, and the psychology attached to it. Do you Mm -hmm. have an understanding of that and try to break it down for us? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to relationships and the relationships that we have with our stuff, with our homes, Mm -hmm. with our habits, and really with ourselves. So if I can look at my home and say, okay, I have a good relationship with maintaining this or taking care of this, then it's easier for me to engage in keeping things tidy or even being in control of what comes into the home and what goes out of the home. I think a hard thing for folks to do is to let go of things that they have, you know, if there's a sentimental attachment to Mm. it, or they think, you know, I might need that one day, um, or if you've gained or lost weight, I should hold on to these things. What advice do you have to help people let go of that attachment? Sure. I talk with my clients a lot about weeding out indifference. If we can look around our house and walk around our house and pick up an item and say, I don't know how I feel about this, I feel indifferent about this, either get it out of your house, let it go, or maybe even put it in a box, put it somewhere where you don't see it for a while, and then enjoy a home without actual tangible indifference and let agency start to seep into the conversation and the relationship you have with your home. Because when people bring things in, and Shirley and I were talking a little bit about, you know, you you go to 5Ks, you go to events, you get all these T-shirts, and the next thing you know, you look in your closet and you literally have like 50 T-shirts. Sure. So what should you be thinking about even before you go to a space of, I want to get rid of, but you, you, you sort of brought this stuff in. Yeah. And again, working with my clients, there's a certain point where I have to say, if you think about the spigot of what comes into your house, just turn it off for a little bit and deal with what's inside. Mm. Turn the spigot to let things leave, flush it out, and then have a healthier relationship with what comes in. So you might be at that 5K and see all the t-shirts and great, wonderful. It's a memento of something that I did. Am I actually going to wear it? How much do I actually like it? And just be more realistic with the relationship that you might have with it six months down the road. We have a comment. Anne-Marie has commented that she's in the process of throwing one thing out a day. (laughs) Little steps. Yeah. And and I love these little Mm -hmm. steps. Mm -hmm. But what is another way or what are other ways that people can kind of get this decluttering process started? Because sure. it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I have a method that I teach my clients, and it's really simple, and I'm not reinventing the wheel here. It's just starting from the door and working your way around the room. So mm-hmm. it might take an hour for me to get from the doorway to the nightstand, or it might take a whole day to get the nightstand to the closet. But if I know where I'm going 
and I know then looking back where I've come from, it makes it a lot easier than bumping around the whole entire house, mm-hmm. feeling the sense of overwhelm. Yeah, because yeah. I have definitely felt where I'll start a project and then I'm like, oh, I go over there and I start something else. Mm-hmm. And then I just have a, a space that looks even worse than when it started. That's mm-hmm. right. And nothing's finished. And the same applies to cleaning. Once you go through, you can be cleaning as you go. And once a room, you've hit that end goal of only having things that you care about, that you want, that are useful, that you think are beautiful. Uh, once you can maintain it, you can do it the same way. You go into a room, you you work from the perimeter of the room, the middle of the room, and then look at that. It's easier, easier, easier each time you go through. Yeah, and there's a, a person who we all know who focuses on decluttering, and her theory is about looking at things and saying, does this thing bring me joy? If the answer is no, you throw it away. If it is yes, you keep it. But you say that is the wrong question to sort of ask yourself that you should be thinking about clutter in a different way. Well, I think that there's a lot of great points that she has to Mm -hmm. help people know if you want to keep something or not. But she doesn't really address that we're living in late stage capitalism and she doesn't address the gender divide. Mm -hmm. So there's issues when it comes to the home that you have to really balance these things. It can be emotional. It's emotional to feel like you're caring for most of the house and you're doing all the work and historically domestic work has been unpaid. So even to get there and be like, oh, it needs to be all things that I love. Mm. It's, that's a hard place to get to. So mm-hmm. taking it one step at a time, one section at a time, and just being more methodical about it helps us stay on track. You mentioned the gender divide. Is it still, based on your experience, predominant where the women are the main people to be caring for cleaning the home. Absolutely. And that's why I consider my cleaning company a feminist cleaning company because Mm. we're directly undercutting the systemic burden that predominantly falls on women. And to recognize that and understand that and give it value is really important. And so I want to talk because I like having a clean, organized home, right? But I don't like what the work that it takes to get there, Mm -hmm. even though I do it because um, I do feel like I can't function well in clutter or in mess. Sort of how how do you sort of change your mood? What, how do you set your mindset up to where like it's an enjoyable uh, thing? Yeah, that is a great question. And the first thing I would say is it's all one and the same when we think about it. I ask my clients how much of their life do they dread How are we dreading the cleanup? Are we dreading work or driving around or all the things that we end up having to do, the responsibilities of life? So having a healthy relationship with those aspects of life will serve us well. So for instance, after dinner with my kids, we make it fun. I don't like to Mm. think of it as a chore. We all work together until it's done. We put on the music. We dance, we're catching up, and it's just part of life. And that's just how it is. And the hope is that if I can teach my kids that or embody that myself, that it's it's okay and it can be fun. How can I make this thing more enjoyable? Then we can look out of our homes with a little bit more agency, right? We can say uh, cleaning up the planet yeah. shouldn't be such a drag yeah. when we can actually care for ourselves too. I will say I 
love cleaning. Mm-hmm. Um, I do get into this meditative state mm-hmm. when I'm going, and sometimes I'll just be in a zone. I'll have AirPods in and just listen to music and go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I lost track of what I was even saying at this mm-hmm. point. But mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think we I think it's a great idea to to not always associate cleaning with such a, a negative tone because it can be empowering. It can be therapeutic yeah, and taking control and learning self-awareness. And truly, dirt and grime and soap scum, it all is a cause and effect thing, right? If you know that this, this, and this will cause this, this, and this, then you can observe your habits, get to know yourself a little bit more, insert grace, grace for yourself, grace for the people in your house or that you live with, and then act out of the other use of the word grace and be more graceful. How am I actually uh, bumping around my house? Am I being more careful? Like have some self-awareness. Yeah, and if you are just tuning in, we're talking about decluttering, getting rid of stuff, keeping a clean home with Lois Volta, author of Confessions of a Cleaning Lady. Lady, She's giving us some best practices for kicking clutter to the curb we want to hear from you. Do you have some advice? Do you want to get advice? What are your cleaning tips? How do you motivate yourself, your partner, or your kids to clean up? You can call us. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. Marsha comments, I'm a bit of a minimalist. I get so much joy from getting rid of things. Cluttered spaces clutter my mind. So I definitely strive to keep a clutter house. On the other side, Kay from West Philly says, not all people who have a clean home have a clean mind. Mm-hmm. Kay says uh, they know people have a clean home, but still struggle mentally. That is a great point. And just mm-hmm. because we have messy homes or things are cluttered has no reflection on the person's internal state, mm-hmm. right? It's really important not to make value judgments. But it is for me, When I walk into my kitchen, I feel like I can be more creative Mm. when there's not a sink full of dishes. I feel like I can engage in living, in the act of living, in a more deep or impactful way when I know that I have some type of control, which comes back to how I live, how I'm teaching my children how to live, and honestly, just taking some more or a deeper dive in looking at personal responsibility. So there's a comment here from Bill, and Bill writes, I knew a guy who had books, newspapers, and magazines from the floor to the ceiling mm. in every room of the house. I mean, that's a pretty extreme case, but in that instance, how would someone get started there? I mean, do you do the door, start-at-the-door approach? Well, y- yes and no. I mean, it as long as it might have taken for those things to build up, it might take just as long to to break them down. Mm -hmm. Sometimes really sitting with people and talking about it takes a lot of emotional work. So it's not just as easy as hiring somebody to come in and get it out. Sometimes people need the space to be able to talk about it, process it, wonder why they actually did that in the first place. What are they going to lose? What are they going to gain? and how much rent these things are actually taking up. 
And I, I, I want to ask where the line is because Greg commented on Facebook. He says he is clutter prone. He says my mom and other family members, they are collectors. Some of that mentality seeped into my mind, I think. So how do you deal? How, where's the line? Because there's an issue. Let's say you love dolls. You love little porcelain, you know, elephants. Right. Mm -hmm. And or you just love, you know, clothes. And then it gets to a point where it's no longer I like to collect or I love this thing. It becomes clutter. Where is that line? I don't know if that there's an answer to that question, because everybody lives differently. Everybody's mm. homes are different. Everyone grew up in a different family of origin. It's it's hard to say where a line is. But if we stopped and took a light a look and more of a deep focused dive on where is our personal line sometimes we need a little bit of help to get there and the moment we start to feel overwhelmed it's probably good to yeah. take a little bit of uh, introspection we have caller linda on the line and she has a tip for us linda are you there uh yes i'm here you have a tip uh yes i am here I do have a tip because um, you talk about clutter and I don't believe in keeping a lot of clutter, uh, but I am concerned with putting it in a landfill. And uh, we have a project here in Morristown called the Buy Nothing Project. Mm -hmm. There's also one called Free Cycle, and they're both Facebook pages, I guess. And they allow you to give your stuff away to your neighbors for free. And you would be surprised what... Uh, is your junk is someone else's treasure mm -hmm. and it keeps it out of the trash can yeah that's a great that's a great point and i personally use that my local buy nothing group mm -hmm. um to clear out a bunch of things mm -hmm. because you do you hate to add to the landfill mm -hmm. um and create more pollution right there that is actually a huge barrier for so many people because they have this sense of guilt mm. of where it's going to go and what did they do and they bought all this stuff and now it's going to end up in a landfill. Mm -hmm. There's a certain point where you have to say, okay, I did that. It's trashed. I'm going to be way more mindful with what mm -hmm. I bring in later. Just have to accept it. There is something really, really beautiful, though, about cutting your losses mm -hmm. and living in generosity. That's why I really encourage my clients. It's like, okay, yeah, you could get 20 bucks for that on, you know, one of these groups. Or it could really, really bless someone else or a charity or an organization. I really encourage my clients to donate to thrift or stores or families in need. Mm. Yeah. And we have another caller um, who is looking for some advice. Sharon, you are on Studio 2. What is your question? Hi. Um, I am really struggling with desk clutter, paper clutter. We have two desks. One is my work from home desk, which is completely covered in papers. And our downstairs desk is kind of like the staging for like all of our medical bills mm. and anything coming into the home. And it ends up just all over this paper mess um and i'm i'm i i just can't seem to figure something out that that keeps it going um well i could maybe throw everything we'll put it on the floor then make piles but then i can't sustain it mm -hmm. yeah so how do you set yourself up for yeah, she needs so a much, system Sarah. she needs like yeah. some kind how of how do system. you set yourself up for success when you're with all this paper yeah well sometimes and just to be honest like sometimes we need 
an outside eye to get some strategy going. And that's what I help my clients with. Other times, it's just about time. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time to go through that pile of papers. But I'd even ask the question behind the pile of papers. Why is it that I'm having a hard time engaging with a pile of papers? Why am I having a hard time finding those solutions? And what's getting in the way for me to having more of a strategic approach? Hmm. Interesting. One of the we have an email from Yvonne speaking of time who says I sold my house in 2021 after living there for over 30 years and had to declutter, raise two kids and many dogs, cats over the years. My real estate agent had the best advice. Do 15 minutes a day. Sometimes that was 15 minutes. Sometimes I kept it at it for hours, but it gave me permission to stop if I've needed to. That I feel like that sort of like that little chunk gets uh-huh. you started. 15 minutes is not a lot of time. No, 15 minutes isn't a lot of time, but also when we set a full day aside and not think about it as a chore day or um, like a cleaning day, I think about it a day that I'm going to spend in my home where I can get to know myself better. I put a good chunk of time aside so I can get to that point mm-hmm. where I'm only spending 15 yeah. minutes a day. That's, I think a lot of times we get aspirational and thinking and then we let ourselves down when we don't do what we think is the minimum. We have one quick comment, and I think we're running out of time, though, but Elaine from Philadelphia is a widow. She has lots of books, photos from her husband, and she's a hard time getting rid of them. What mm-hmm. what advice would you offer her that she can do? I mean, it's, it's different for everybody, and I really yeah. like to emphasize that because everybody's grief and process is going to be different, and sometimes we can really put a lot of stock in the things representing the person so sometimes decluttering can be a way of grieving yeah and that is lois volta her book confessions of a cleaning lady is out now thank you so much for joining us in studio thanks for having me well coming up recognizing faces Mm. and the people who just can't get it in their heads stick with us Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Shirley Min, in for Avi Wolfman Aaron. Imagine not being able to recognize a face, not even the people you're closest to, like a spouse or sibling. This is what people with face blindness experience. They can't connect particular facial features with an individual. Mm. And in the most extreme versions, they have trouble even recognizing themselves. So interesting. And it's very hard to even wrap your brain around it because most of us never even think about it when we see somebody we know, right? Well, a new book by Drexel professor Sharona Pearl explores this condition as well as one on the opposite end of the spectrum super recognition that's where people who can recognize and remember a face they can do that just after the briefest encounter her book is called do I know you and she spoke to my co-host Avi Wolfman Arendt last week you write in the book recognizing faces 
feels like an act of memory, but it isn't exactly. We process faces differently than almost any other thing that we see. Wait, what? <laughs> I mean, honestly, explain that. Face seems like an arbitrary thing to me. It's just whatever, what's above the neck, I suppose. Why would our brains process that differently than looking at other things in the world? So it's less that we can't recognize the face as an entity or people who are face blind, also known as prosopagnosia, can't recognize that it is a face, the fact of a face. They can see eyes, nose, and a mouth. It's just being able to distinguish those eyes and mouth as unique and different to any other particular eyes, nose, and mouth. But they can look, for instance, at like one type of computer and another type of computer and understand that those are different and remember that. So it's still it's still very hard for me to understand, like, what is it about the face where they can understand that it's a face, but not distinguish among different faces? Yeah, it's really hard for me, too, because I can do it. Right, exactly. And it is what we call tacit knowledge. It's something that's so automatic that we don't even realize that we're doing it. And I've tried really hard to come up with good analogies or to learn from folks who really can't recognize faces or distinguish between people's faces to understand what it is. And two common analogies that may help but don't entirely is that if I were to show you a picture of a bunch of different Lego. Mm -hmm. And some are blue and red and yellow. And then I took it away from you. You would know and you'd be able to see, well, there was blue and there was red and there was yellow. But would you be able to say the exact configuration of what color was on top of which one? Certainly no. not for me, yeah. No, you know it's Lego. But to be able to say, well, but this is the unique and particular configuration of this set of Lego would be quite challenging. So it's a little bit similar to faces. You know their eyes, nose, and a mouth. But unless they are meaningfully different in some way, which is to say different skin color, dramatically different face shape, a piercing, a really, maybe. A, piercing yeah. a tattoo, a really notable feature, you're probably stuck. Yeah. So when you think about it like that, it's almost more miraculous that we can distinguish faces. Or most of us can, because like you said, we can't pick up on intricate patterns in many other things that we see in the world and commit them to memory. But but we, most of us can with faces. Yeah, it's actually astonishing in particular ways because so many different things have to happen in our brains for this to work. And most of us are mostly good at it. Yeah. But we're not only just doing a processing of the unique features. For most of us, our ability to recognize somebody is pretty linked to the relationship that we have with them, or at least the interaction. So you're probably going to be better at recognizing your mother, your lover, your brother than the person who served you coffee or passed you on the street the other day. Because you're not just recalling the face, you're connecting it to your interaction, to your relationship. But for folks who are face blind and for folks who are on the complete other end of the spectrum, super recognizers, that's actually not true. Their ability to recognize a face is totally unrelated to their encounter or relationship it's with It's divorced from social proximity. It's divorced from social proximity. And you might think, well, okay, but if you try really hard or if you see someone enough, then you'll be able to recognize them. And that's akin for someone who is profoundly face-blind, the most extreme face-blind person. It's akin to asking somebody who's colorblind to focus just really hard, right. and then you'll be able to see red. Yeah. So we, we talked about this is hard to understand. It's hard yeah. to process because most of us 
do this recognition instinctually. 1947 yeah. is when face blindness really gets codified. And only like 100 years before that do we start to see documented cases of what we think was probably face blindness. Why did it take so long? I think a lot of that has to do with the very tacit nature of this knowledge. If you don't know that something's a thing, then you don't have a category for it. You don't have a way to frame it. And then you don't know when it's not there. So it's worth noting that that first case in 1947 was acquired prosopagnosia, which means that somebody was able to recognize faces and then had an event, a fever, a traumatic brain injury that interrupted it. So somebody was able to provide a before and after. For folks who could never recognize faces, there really wasn't a framework to understand or interpret it. So instead, they just felt dumb, like they weren't trying hard enough, like they were rude, maybe they were misdiagnosed with various other kinds of ailments. But really, they just couldn't do this thing, and we didn't even understand that it was a thing in the first place. So 1947, face blindness sort of gets its name. In 2009, we get this idea of super recognition. And part of what's interesting about super recognition is that it allows us to establish the idea that this is all on a spectrum, right? Yeah. So there are two poles, and we're all somewhere between these two poles. How do we know that? Well, it is, again, really fascinating to think that this only comes up in 2009, which is essentially yesterday in yeah, scientific like, terms. It's right? like just got to high school. Right. There's so many things in the world that we do not know. Uh, a little bit before 2009, but that's when the paper came out, this group of researchers were out and about testing various face blind people, and they were in someone's apartment who they had heard was face blind. And... This person's roommate came up to them and said, oh, yeah, you're those people. That thing that you work on, you know that? I have the opposite. <laughs> and they were like, sure, buddy. <laughs> and I mean, maybe they thought it was true. Maybe they didn't. Uh, and then they give him the tests and he blows the tests out of the water, right? The face blindness tests don't many, make any kind of sense for him at all. And then they start feeling like there was a bit of a payoff to the hunch that they already had, which is that our ability to recognize faces, like so many other human capabilities, is broadly distributed. When we try to isolate this idea of super recognizers, what really are we talking about? And, and we're back to the same problem of how do you describe something that you cannot really experience yourself? Right. And I think there's been a lot of hyperbole around super recognizers. There are all kinds of game shows and TV episodes and even novels with like they couldn't forget a face, even if they wanted to, you know, <laughs> call me Netflix. Um, I would say that it is more akin to what we already talked about, which is that their ability to recognize faces is unconnected to the relationship that they've had with people. So if they encounter someone and if they have an opportunity to process that face, then they've got it. So one thing that you do in the book that's interesting is you, you talk about super recognizers and you talk about people who are face blind and then you're able to sort of draw some common lessons from the both of them. And I want to read this passage. Living in a sea of blank faces may have its advantages. It certainly has much to teach us about not judging others by how they look. And living in a world of infinitely variable faces can teach us the same thing. 
When every feature is fundamentally unique and unforgettable, they all become equally meaningful or meaningless. Explain that a little further. What do you see? What sort of lessons about society do you see sort of emanating from both, both poles of this spectrum? So I think there are two parts to your question, Avi. The first piece, which is what can we learn about extremeness as a common feature, is one of the things that I'm really taken by as a general question. We tend to think of spectrums as being complete opposites. But what do we lose when we don't think about people on so-called opposite ends of the spectrum together, just by virtue of the fact that they, at the very least, have one thing in common, which is they are extremes, right? right? So we think of them as very apart. We right. never really think of them as, as common. We don't think of them as common. But for example, both face-blind people and super-recognizers may develop an ability to create instant intimacy. Yeah. Because if everybody could be your mother or your lover or your brother, then you greet them in that kind of way. So for example, the former governor of Colorado, John Hinkenlooper, is face blind. You would think that that would be a really, really difficult thing for a politician to be. But he has people who can help him recognize faces, and he has this ability to create intimacy. But to the other piece of your question, which is, what do we have a, as a society have to learn? This gets to bigger questions about what we imagine we know about people based on how they look. We use the face as a proxy for all kinds of biases and judgments. And what we think about other people based on how they look really tells us a lot about ourselves, mm -hmm. ultimately. But we tend to naturalize these judgments. Oh, I don't like this person. It, it's just a gut instinct. Or no, for all these kinds of really discreet reasons, when we're layering all sorts of racial biases, misogyny, ableism, classism on people, on their faces. So if you look to face blind people for whom that's essentially almost entirely absent or super recognizers that for similar reasons that get inflected slightly differently, that is also the case. It's at least a way to interrupt those moments of judgment. It's very hard to stop to interrogate things that happen um, automatically Yep. For, for the vast majority of us. Yep. Um, and so this is a chance to step back and say, okay, just how important are faces in creating the fabric of society? Right. Do you have an answer for that? Do you Do you have a way to explain to people like, just how important faces and facial recognition is? Yeah, because we have just had the largest global experiment on the question of the importance of faces because we lived in a world where we couldn't access people's faces for a very, very long time. And we didn't like it very much. Of course, there are all kinds of reasons why we struggled during the period of the most intense moments of the COVID-19 pandemic. But for many people, both having to cover their own faces and having to interact with other people through the barrier of a mask was really, really challenging because we really do like to be face to face with people as we're building relationships, creating intimacy and understanding the humanity of others and ourselves. How do people with face blindness adjust and sort of make their way through society? You talk about some of the methods here. Um, can you share some of those? 
it almost seems like a superpower in and of itself. It the really adaptations does. are extraordinary in terms of being able to recognize gait, in terms of being able to distinguish between voices, in terms of picking up on people's general style. Right. If your friend always dresses in a particular way, some of us might not pick up on that. But for a face blind person, that's pretty much the key, because the flip side of it is, for example, if a parent who is profoundly face blind sent their toddler off to daycare and that toddler, as toddlers often do, needed a clothing change, that parent would not recognize their kid at pickup. So these pieces become incredibly important in order to be able to navigate the world. It's a million other cues, I guess, to make up for not having this one cue that most of us use a lot. A lot and without even knowing. Yeah. But another thing that tends to happen, and this gets back to one of your earlier points, Avi, is that face-blind people tend to have more diverse groups of friends. They tend to also be partnered with or attracted to or drawn to people who might, according to rigid society standards, not be conventionally attractive because, once again, unusual features become a lot more recognizable. So it's a new way and a really, I find, quite moving, if extremely challenging, version of how to surround yourself with people. Sharona Pearl is a professor of medical ethics and history at Drexel University. She spoke with Avi about her new book, Do I Know You? And friends, that is it for Studio 2 today. It was fun being it with was, you, Shirley, the fun. past couple Thanks, of days. Cherry. For more of our show, you can follow WHYY on all platforms and download the show wherever you get your podcast. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Tina Calake engineered today's program. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Shirley Min. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much for joining us today. Jeeves calling me back again I've just seen a face I can't forget the time A place where we just met She's just a girl for me And I want all the world to see we've met mm-hmm. Falling